how's it going? That sounds better. Yeah, Tweezy. Oh, this is kind of really weird hearing yourself through this. Yeah. I don't actually, like, because I'm used to hearing my voice through this. I like hearing your crisp, crisp tunes in my ear. Oh, thank you very much, gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) Who would have thought, eh? Back in that November, that November night, back in 1999 or 2021. Oh, who would have thought? Who would have thought? (sighs) I met Chaz the night before. That's fucking mental. Like, that's actually pretty crazy. Not for. You were telling me that it doesn't actually matter if you pour a beer in two pours or one. Yeah, I reckon that's true. I I fundamentally disagree. Yeah, I also I have this ongoing argument with Michael Carr about he reckons that you have to like do your pour really quickly for it to count. I disagree. Yeah, same. I, I really like a slow process where I can really put the pour together you know what I mean yeah it's a bit more of an artwork like you can't rush out it's kind of like when you watch someone doing like coffee art yeah they don't they don't rush it I'd rather a good presentation slowly than a shitty presentation quickly that's what I always say and I think a beer is all about the presentation really I mean the, the taste is also somewhat <laughs> important <laughs> the taste is great should we I think we've started to be honest I think we've just thought yeah uh, Gus has just entered the room Hi guys um, What were you guys talking about? I just had to pee We were just talking about beer Yeah We were actually talking about the first time we met Oh really? Yeah it was a great moment Can I ask or are we just going to say the exact same thing again? And I'll just uh, listen you to it ask. back well, yeah, how'd we'll, you, Okay we'll, how'd you meet? Well it was actually the first night we met um, It was through a mutual friend Actually I met his girlfriend the night Charlie before, yeah. Charlie Friend of the show um, <laughs> She'll like that <laughs> She'll yeah. like that She'll be listening um, and it was really love at first sight. We ended up going to the Ruck to watch the World Cup, uh, one of the finals at the World Cup. Um, and then we came home, walked home in the rain, and the friendship was forged. It was a bit like a scene out of the notebook, really. Yeah, it was. It was, it was, a, it was a double pub experience, which I really think just speaks double, for our... A, du- um. a dub pub, if you will. <laughs> a dub pub. <laughs> I, met, I met him over here at, at the spiritual home, Badger & Co. Yeah. Um, on one of their little outdoor tables on a, on a rainy November evening. Was um, it so for me? Me and Will have spoken about this. It wasn't exactly love at first sight for us, but it sounds like a bit more it was for you guys. Thing, yeah. it, it just happened. Yeah. Well, it was also um, a funny day where Badger were doing a thing where you could win Great Northern merch by buying Great Northerns. Oh, what are your thoughts on Great Northerns, Ethan? Look, I really don't like them, but I, we were drinking them because. We really wanted to win the Great Northern Bucket Hat that they had. And it was like a luck of the draw. Like you'd go into a raffle every time you bought a schooner of Great Northern. No way. And yeah. Will just started going around buying people beers so that he could try and win a bucket hat. I did not win a bucket hat. Um, just <laughs> not record show. Uh, I have a bone to pick with Great Northern. But anyway, we'll get, back, get to that later. Yeah, I think I just won like three stubby holders. And yeah. that was my evening. And then uh, one of our friends who doesn't even drink beer bought one, bought one drink and won the bucket hat. And I'm still currently in the uh, lawsuit process. <laughs> The maths don't work out. Yeah, it's uh. statistically improbable. Um, <laughs> All right. Yeah. yeah we were... li- little did I know that when I'd met Ethan, and Sparks did fly, but I look at this man and I think, legend, but little did I know he was actually a child athlete, superstar. Yeah, I think the title of this episode might be The Struggles of the Fastest Kid in Year Six. Yeah. Because, like, you know, I'm looking at him right now. It's quite emasculating. Like, he's a colossus. Like, he's a colossus. But... I imagine you were kind of similar in year six. Like, you were the guy, right? I was you were pretty, the fastest kid at school. I was a pretty, like, 
early puberty kind of kid, so I was yeah. like shaving the mow in year six. Really? Um, oh. Like little, the little grubby little mow in year six. And yeah. I kind of, my year six was actually amazing. I, I missed like 42 days of school, um, but then got the award for 100% attendance. Yeah. Um, because it, was, it was all for representative sport. Really? So I managed to sort of, I managed to make like the New South Wales primary schools, athletics, AFL and basketball teams. So I had to go to three national championships in the year. But like, so you get a whole week off school for each national championship. You get a whole week off school for each state championship. Um, And they also, there was a bit of chat about potentially making the rugby team too, but it collided with the basketball champs or something. So I couldn't actually try out, but yeah. So Um, we, we had someone similar. So I was in the Victorian soccer year six team and we went to Queensland to play everyone. And we had our version of Ethan. He was a guy called Alex, just com- like ridiculously overdeveloped. I don't know what steroids his dad was giving him. But it, like the game plan was just passable to Alex because his quads are like three times the size of your head, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so you were, you were the same, but X3, like because you did AFL and athletics as well. And yeah, was the third and basketball, yeah. Oh my and God. And I was kind of like in year five, I was the national high jump champion. Then in year six, I was the national. state 800 state meter champion, still the state high jump champion. Um, and came third at nationals in like the combined events. So they get you to do like four different events. Oh my gosh. I was pretty gun at handball. <laughs> Just back in, year, back in year three, carved up the court. Anyways, it's, well, to say that he hit puberty early was probably an understatement because I remember I was uh, having some beers with uh, Ethan's parents, friends of the show, and, um, and I hear a story about when you first were going to your physio. Yeah, so I've... Um always just had i guess from like pretty early age had all that like growth pain shit like just sucked um so i go to the physio with my mum um when i was about 11 um and apparently like my physio who i'm now very good friends with she kind of like recounts the story from her perspective where she was just like really perplexed at why like a 16 17 18 year old kid was coming to the physio with his mum um but I was 11. <laughs> she was like, why is this fucking weirdo bringing his mum to the physio? And then fast forward to, the, to by the time I was 16, 17, 18, and mum was still coming to the physio with me. She, she just loved watching me squirm in pain whilst they like, you know, gave me massages and triggering and all that shit. Physio often visit for you? Oh, yeah. I Through like year 10, 11 and 12, I was pretty much like... I basically had like a fortnightly physio session booked so that I always would have one just on the basis that I was probably going to be injured or sore in some description. Yeah. 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 Um, and so was there one sport in particular that you kind of honed in on as you got a bit older? Or? It was a hard one where like I really wanted to, but I was on a scholarship at a private school um, in Sydney um, yeah. and they were, it was kind of weird, like a lot of the, coaches weren't necessarily on the same page of like the various sports in the school um and they all kind of tried to get me to play their sport um and would get quite grumpy if i didn't so that was an interesting one hot property exactly as you are today so you would have felt yeah that pressure from adults yeah it was pretty rough you were what nine ten yeah yeah fair bit of that um and like particularly like at school like i i came to a bit of a conclusion that i wanted to stop playing basketball yeah. So at 15, I stopped playing outside of school basketball. I think at 14 or 15, I stopped playing AFL. And I really thought, I love athletics. I really want to give this thing a bit of a crack. Um, and I remember saying to my school, I was like, oh, can I change my co-curricular? And they were like, oh, what's your co-curricular currently? I was like, oh, specialist basketball. Mm. And they they're like, what do you want to change to? I was like, athletics. And they were like, no, like you have to play basketball. 
and they're like you know and i had this our head of co-curricular in sport who's basically just like do you know you know how much the head of basketball's done for you he helped you get your scholarship you know yeah, blah, yeah, blah 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 yeah. just kind of went on um and what was like hero. basically it was just like you owe it to him to keep playing yeah, yeah and yeah. little fucking 15 16 year old me was just kind of like oh yeah fair enough i guess so you kept playing kept playing played basketball all the way through um the year 12 season i only played one game though i had various injuries so i yeah. didn't play heaps but yeah played all the way through um mostly hated it but it was all right and so so you hated it and you can't so you say you fell out of love with the sport oh yeah i really fell out of love with the sport probably even as like a 13 14 year old i just mm-hmm. started finding it really hard um i think particularly in like i started seeing a psychologist as, in the, as I, at like 14 yeah. and i think something that she really brought up to me which i think was very true um for a very long time was that i sometimes like really attached myself worth to performance in sport absolutely um and i guess i was spreading myself fairly thin playing a whole bunch of sports i was also playing you know in the age rugby team at my school was loving that as just like a fun sport on the side um but it just meant that i was spread quite thin and i was not putting the time and effort into one individual sport that some of the other kids were so to some degree like they were catching up um and i guess like other 14 year olds thought it was a nice thing to really really make sure I knew that other people were catching up and that oh I wasn't goodness. the guy I once was. But that, that thing you talk about in terms of attaching self-worth to performance, I mean, 100%. Like, I grew up being, you know, half okay at soccer and I played at kind of Melbourne City Academy for a while, so they played in the A-League and I was there for a couple of years. And it's quite funny looking back on it now because, like, you know, like the price of a soccer player in Europe is just ridiculous, like, like literally hundreds of millions of dollars. And so Melbourne City, as a business model, say to themselves, ha, we can take, you know, the 50 best kids from around Melbourne and fucking break 49 of them just to produce one gem and the entire system, you know, pays for itself 10 times over. And so I was one of the 49. Like, I was there for a while and it just gets to a point where your entire identity is this sport. Your entire self-worth is how you performed on Sunday. You know, your expectations, because your parents are putting so much time, you know, driving you to games, doing all the stuff, the family, every family gathering, every social gathering, oh, how's the soccer going, things like this. And then I really struggled with it and I've had a lot of close friends who've like super, super, super struggled with it. When you get to that point, when you turn 17, 18 and it's, you know, I left Melbourne City and that was kind of it for me. Like my entire life was predicated upon me becoming a professional soccer player. That was my identity. That was my goal. And so... To not achieve it, like, really, like, you know, it hits you for six. You know, I saw a psychologist in year 12 for a similar thing. Because it was just like, what the fuck do I do now? You yeah. know, like, my entire life has been completely focused on this one thing. I, like, woke up and went to bed thinking about one thing, right? And I didn't achieve it. It's like, what the fuck do you do now? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. like, literally, yeah. Um, I, feel, I feel that would be just listening to this especially hard because you talk about, you know, it's... It's funny that you say you put the self-worth on you, but when you have, you know, your head of co-curricular sports saying, no, your value to us is basketball. You are not valuable elsewhere. And, you know, like, your value being placed upon other people, like your family. Oh, so how's the soccer going? You know. Even at training, right? Like, we had a lot of European coaches come in. (laughs) Like, the Eastern European guys were really tough. And they just, because, because you don't understand, like, at that level, the, the transition from being quite good to being professional, it's just up here in your head. 
it's as soon as you step on that pitch, you're a fucking killer. You take no prisoners and you do what you need to do. Right? And I just never had that. Like I never had that killer instinct. And they tried to breathe that into you. And like before games, the coach would pull me aside and be like, you're fucking shit. You know, I've never thought you're any good. You're a terrible football player. All, all, my, all your teammates think the exact same thing. You know, you've got only one game left to show, show me what you've got. Otherwise, you're, you're out of here. And they did that multiple times over multiple years. It's like for a kid who his entire like, self-worth is predicated on that, like that's the end of the world for you. Like that is the end of the world. Yeah, I, I had a lot of issues with that as well. I don't know what it is about um, junior sports coaches that just fucking hate children. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. As like a, as like a forty five fifty year old male who hates kids, I don't know how you pick your career to be a high performance junior basketball coach. But I guess for them, it's probably all just the pathway to getting a professional coaching gig, I suppose. But yeah, I, I'm someone who's never done well with negative feedback. Like, I really, yeah. I give myself enough negative feedback, yeah. and particularly yeah. like as a young kid, if I if I if I fucked up on a basketball court, I knew I fucked up on a basketball court. I didn't, yeah. I didn't need to have yeah, yeah. like a middle-aged man yelling at me and telling me that I fucked up. I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, I know. Thanks, Chief. Yeah, th- thanks, Champ. Like, really, really appreciate that one. But like, the other thing I found really interesting was that so often it wasn't, didn't come around the other way. Like, when I did something really great, it was just kind of like that was the expectation. And yeah. it was never like, Ethan, that was really good. Like, good yeah. job. Yeah. Um, which I guess is something that me and my dad have talked about so much because we've... He's kind of was on that whole path way with me whilst I was doing all that stuff. And he was just, I, I guess, perplexed as well as to how these sort of junior sporting systems operate. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Shout out, Matt, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, the basketball New South Wales system was probably not quite as bad as what you're saying in regard to football. I feel like football is kind of that sport where they, they do seem to just take it to that nth degree. Yeah, um, they just you go in and they commodify you completely and they turn you into an asset and they try to make you as valuable as possible. And if you're not valuable to them, you're thrown aside. Literally, literally. I like have this, one day you wake up, you're out. I have this whole theory about basketball in Australia, which you know might be a little bit specific and technical about basketball, but I don't really think that we produce basketball players, so to speak, in Australia. Like we really just produce like little basketball robots. Everyone in Australia mm. plays the same way. And it's like an expectation you all run kind of like the same sets. And like, I remember it's like an under 12. So what, you're, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old. And, you know, every single time at the court, we're like running plays and shit. And yeah. like, they're like, get through the offense. And, you know, it just like, I feel like it trains a lot of like young basketball players, in my opinion, to their way of going about basketball is I have to go from A to B to C rather than just like giving kids the skills to like be creative yeah. and play spontaneously um, and be really effective doing that. And so I really thought the New South Wales system just sort of pushed forward these sorts of clones of each other that played really boring shit basketball. Yeah. And then, you know, the the few guys that really do come out of Australia who are really great players, that's not exactly how they play. Yeah, it's funny, like, the cultural difference, especially in soccer. Like, you know, I, uh, I went to Japan and Europe a couple of times and, like, seeing how other players play, especially the South Americans were always really interesting to me because it was like they had that kind of killer instinct because for me, like I'm come from a super, super like, you know, lucky and privileged background and my parents have always looked after me and things like this. Whether when you play, you know, when you're a right back and the left winger, your direct opponents from kind of Colombia, 
and him getting the pro contract is the difference between you know generational wealth for his family and getting his family out of that situation. You don't really stand a chance, to be honest. You just don't. No, no, you, you don't, just don't. And, and nor should you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's you know I think there's like an old adage that they talk about in basketball, like that the closer to the train tracks you live, the greater chance of success. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which you know. Is, is really interesting and, and I guess complaining about it yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not I'm yeah, not exactly yeah, yeah. complaining right yeah, no, like no, no, I'm no, the no, same no, yeah. ridiculously privi- privileged yeah. background um, and as much as I had access to all the programs and all the coaches and all those things I just you know yeah you can't you can't love it in the same way that I, I didn't need basketball mm-hmm. which I think was something that it took me a long time to realise that I didn't need basketball to sort of be a person yeah I don't feel like I've fully realised it for soccer like my heart's not in anymore, but I still, it's still there. How do you, so like obviously when you're a child like star, like you're the coolest kid, like the coolest kid in the class because you can run fast, you can kick a ball hard, and all this expectation is placed on both of you to like your identity is your performance, and then there's a very like critical developmental years where you're having a lot of concept of self and self awareness. How is that transferred into like your adult lives, as you know, your, your value isn't necessarily on how run, fast you can run, but, like, how is that? Like, are you overly critical of yourself? Do you care too much about what other people think of you because you're very performance-based and analytical? You know, and it might not be a sporting setting, but you come away socially and go, oh, I could have, you know, done X, Y, and Z better, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think even, I guess, to some degree, I started taking my academics really seriously towards the end of school and kind of put sport towards the back, particularly with COVID, um, that really slowed down sports stuff at the end of school. So got really competitive academically and now I'm kind of almost the same with myself where if, if I do really badly in things I get really really frustrated with myself um and yeah I guess I mean one of the things I found hard at like a, a private high school particularly is that I guess like my school's the kind of place where all the sports people were really put on a pedestal um and everyone was kind of to some degree got behind the sports people but like tall poppy syndrome is one of the more shit things that I had to deal with as a kid and it was like you know we'd play lunchtime basketball with our whole year at school and you know I was a year nine kid playing in our year 12 first so you know if I missed a shot there'd be 20 kids on the sideline going oh I thought you were in the first you fucking suck how'd you miss you're so shit and it was just like you know I'd leave lunchtime basketball every day just feeling like shit because like some kid who literally wasn't able to put the ball in the hoop whatsoever was abusing me Fuck you, James, if you're listening. <laughs> but then the funny thing is, then it, then, it, then it comes to the fucking weekend and we're, we're playing a home game and that same kid's there, like, cheering for you. Yeah. yeah. And it's just kind of like, I don't, I don't know if some kids just feel like they need to shit on other people in order to sort of, I guess, bring them down and maybe they feel like they can get some worth out of that. But that was really tough. And, and now, you know, I still kind of have that, like, coming back to your question about about life now I sort of still just sort of have that I mean to some degree like an issue where I feel like everything I do is constantly being super judged like if I do something awkward or say something awkward I feel like there's just a lot of attention on me and I'm not a fucking celebrity but like at school it like yeah. semi felt like that in a really minute like in a yeah, trunk and down 100%. sense I guess for me like as kind of tough and kind of just like downright like absurd some of the moments were in terms of the way that coaches would interact with you and how you'd be treated and the expectations you were under like i sit here now like it was such a blessing because nothing phases me now like i was 12 and my entire like self-worth and validation was predicated 
upon the guy standing on the side with the clipboard giving me a rating out of 10, right? Like, I would... Like, if I saw a psychologist then, I would have been diagnosed with anxiety for sure. Like, the day before trials or big games, I wouldn't sleep at all. Like, not I wouldn't sleep that well. I wouldn't sleep at all. I would stare at the wall for 10 hours. And But now it's kind of like... Because even though it was... It's not a big moment kind of objectively, but subjectively for me it was everything. And so now it kind of puts everything in perspective. It's like, wow, this sucks and this is like stressful, but at least it's not that, yeah. you know? And so I go into... Like, like my year 12 exams, like didn't care. Like I did okay, just didn't care. Like in terms of I didn't get nervous. Like nothing really phases me in the same way anymore. And like I'm really, really grateful for that. Yeah, that's really like... Because I, you know, I've, as, other than being a gun at Hamble in um, Nine Square, uh, I didn't have that experience of, you know, those high-stress situations. So as soon as I got to HSC, that was the first time. It's kind of like, you know, this thing of, like, your values placed on you. And as you're, as, like, sporting guns as kids, you've had these situations of, like, okay, for the next 90 minutes, my worth as a person is going to be critiqued. And the HSC was the first time you go into that. And, like, before my Mon History exam, I was spewing my guts up in the shower because it's just, like, I can't handle this stress. So I guess that's, like, you know, silver lining. But do you think, do you feel like, you know how you had, you know, that kid on the sideline yelling, oh yeah, buddy, you're not in, you're not in, well, how are you in first? And then supporting you when the game comes around. Did, has that affected your relationship with people in like, you know, are you a fair weather fan? Are you only with me when it's convenient to you? Yeah, I feel like to some degree it's definitely made me a bit more weary. Um, but at the same time, like, I think I was... I was kind of lucky enough that I was sort of just had the kind of perspective through a lot of that um, that that's just kind of their problem. Yeah. And it's it's not really particularly mine. Not my monkeys, not my circus. Kind of. And I mean, that's a really hard thing to do. I mean, it's a hard conclusion to arrive at. Great skill to learn, though. Great skill to learn. Really, really great skill to learn, I think. Because hmm. no, like, rarely does a negative thing like that come from that kid being secure in himself. Oh, no, oh, yeah. absolutely not. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I um yeah so like earlier this year I was in Melbourne kind of running on the beach near where I live and I was running along and like you know I'm a, I'm a decent runner and this 45 year old pretty short 5 foot 4 5 foot 5 kind of bloke with a receding hairline just like breezes past me and I'm like, it's a weird, like when you're running, like you can't like sprint after him, but you have this weird, no, you're, you're not beating me. Like I, that, that kind of competitiveness is like now I've been so conditioned where it's like everything's kind of like a game. Um, but he stops because he was doing interval training or something like that. It turns around and it's Razor Ray. You know Razor Ray? Like the, the most famous AFL umpire. Oh, wow. Razor yeah, 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 yeah. The really rapid Ray. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like A-list celebrity in Melbourne. And he was right there in front of me and I was like, Hey Razor, how are you? And he's like, Yeah, good. And I said, You know, I'm a, I'm a 20 year old kid. Um, oh, what did I say? No, I said, Hey Razor, can I ask a quick question? He's like, Yeah, for sure. So I was like, I'm a 20 year old kid. My biggest weakness is I care way too much about what other people think of me, and I can't think of a better person to ask than you. Like he has, he referees the AFL every week. You know, games where a hundred thousand spectators are just screaming, "Fuck you, Razor!" Eh? Like. Like, that guy's made a steal, you know? And he said to me, like, in a lot of words, if I had distilled it in the sentence, like, the correlation between the people that have things going for them and the people that don't care is almost, like, linear. Like, it's the people that, you know, have stuff 
on in the world and are going out there and doing their own thing, they don't fucking care about you. You know, they don't. Like, they'll, they'll be nice enough to you, but they're really only concerned about their own thing. It's the people that are just really deeply hurt, you know, that, like, and have nothing else going for them, that they, they kind of, like, project that onto them. And so when he sees that and people are screaming at him, he's just thinking to himself, fuck, who hurt you? You know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Why are you the way that you are? <laughs> Michael Scott. 